Hey guys, welcome to the first episode of the Love Below Show. This episode was featuring my good friend, Mr. Precious. Uh, that's why I call him. I've, I've known him for, for quite a while, and um, these are conversations that uh, we've had for a while. Uh, conversations about Nigeria. Both of us are from Nigeria, so uh, I wanted the first episode to, to sort of touch on, on, on certain issues. And in particular, what we started talking about was superstructure versus infrastructure. If you're wondering what the superstructure is, you need to check out this podcast. That's the, you know, you're going to love it. So um, without wasting any much time, I'll just play the podcast so you can have fun. Peace. The first thing is really just us starting, you know, if we start with that phrase, mm. we say culture, you know, what's it? What do you call it? Oh, well, you mean cultural revolution. The cultural yeah. revolution. Where where are we now in, because we're in the West, where are we in the West? And if we speak about cultural revolution elsewhere in mm. our beloved home, Nigeria, mm. you know, What's your first? What's your first thoughts? Well, I mean, you know, we can talk about. I mean, how how did we even come up with, with the word cultural revolution? There's been many times where we've been, you know, all about Nigeria. What is the way forward? You know, how do we progress? You know, and people have a range of uh, starting points into this type of conversation. You know, mm-hmm. some will say, you know, electricity is just a disaster. If we have, you know proper power infrastructure in the country, then, you know, there will be um, a big movement in terms of productivity, you know, people will be able to manufacture and all of this stuff, you know, people say that, all they say is that, you know, we have um, a lot of politicians who are rogues, you know, and that these people, they need to be in prison and somehow get rid of all these politicians, all our problems will disappear, Mm. you know. That's one side. All those people's point of departure would be, you know, the whole educational system is completely bad. It's just wrong. Like, you know, we don't have the right approach and all of that. For me, in person, I think that is closer to the truth than, you know, the infrastructure, you know, the the police or, you know, the all the institutions like the hospitals or the politicians. Those, for me... I see them as kind of a symptom, you know, of an underlying problem. Mm -hmm. And for me, when I think of the world cultural revolution, and it's not a term that I coined because, you know, it has its roots, of course, you know, in the People's Republic of China. And it was, you know, the guy called Mao um, who who had started this. But um, just, just kind of trying to appropriate that idea into the Nigerian space, you know, I start to, you know, from my reading of, um, of China, you know, a couple of um, philosophy, underlying philosophy that guides their, you know, everyday uh, practices like Confucianism, for example, you know, it made me, you know, really think about the type of problems that we have in Nigeria. And I will say, of course, we have economic problem, we have political problem, but I think that the underlying problem is social. Yeah, it's more kind of a cultural problem. And so then this leads me to 
to the idea that if we're going to get rid of all the problems that we have, we yeah. need to address you know, the main problem, which is the culture. But how do you address the culture? Culture is something that is um, kind of almost invisible. You know, it's not a tangible element. It's not like you need to have some dams or you need to have some um, technical capability in order to, you know, to resolve the problem of culture. It's not like that. You know, it, it takes us back to um, knowledge, you know, what is knowledge? It takes us back to the underlying philosophical traditions of what it actually means for us to come to know, you know, and how we actually know, which is, you know, positivist or uh, kind of interpretive knowledge. So I think culture falls into that kind of interpretive. It's not tangible, yeah? So the only way we can try and change that is by following, um, you know, a number of, of things that I would, I would describe as fitting very much into a cultural revolution. We'll expand on that later as we go along. Thank you, thank you. Because I, I was just about to jump in. So the the first thing is, I, I, there are certain words you said there that I think they just follow like a trail. You start with education first. I think that's yeah. the first thing you mentioned, and then you spoke about Confucianists, mm. you know, in China and how they they had their own cultural revolution. Yeah. And that's why it's important for us to talk about the sh social aspects of things, you know, yeah. what is co the cultural aspect of things. So from education to culture, mm -hmm. you know, if you're at the point of, because somebody can just say, okay, all we need to do is, you know, uh, create better universities. Why wouldn't that work? Why would that not work? And, and um, what would you say? You know, how do you fix culture if you cannot just build, you know, new universities and what have you? Mm. Well, I think one of the problems that we have currently in the UK is that, you know, universities have become very much marketized. So we have experienced the marketization of education so that students are then seen as customers. Yeah. The problem with that is that the university has a space, you know, of learning where people come, not just to learn critically, but to be able to think independently, you know, is very different from the polytechnic. So the university is not a space that prepares people for a job. Mm. The polytechnics, however, you know, will teach people, prepare them, give them the right skills that they need to, um, you know, to get a job. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm saying in essence is if you, if you actually build um, a university, you know, fantastic, magnificent buildings, you know, it doesn't really do justice to what the university is really about. It's not about the infrastructure. Mm. It's very much about the ethos or the outlook with which people have towards education and learning in general. Mm. So um, a professor that, you know, that I followed very closely, who was at Leicester, who's now at the uh, University of Bristol, yeah. Professor Martin Parker, he recently um, authored a book uh, yeah. where he actually touches on, you know, on this topic. And, you know, he describes universities as, you know, as big buildings, you know, and he, the idea is that we need to bulldoze those buildings from the university. So yes. he's a critical yeah. uh, organizational scholar um, in the sense of... What, are, what does he mean? Back, what are, why, why, why is he, uh, why does he feel so strongly about that? 
Well, yeah, because, you know, they, they have well, thousands of, you know, business schools all over the world. Mm. I mean, you know, some universities used to pride themselves more kind of as, um, you know, a school of management. So there's a difference between the school of management and the school yeah. of, uh, of business. So there's this emphasis of, you know, um, approaching the, the the discipline i mean the business or the management discipline from focusing more on you know accounting you know kind of marketing you know kind of um, as if you know there are some very strict regimes that people need to follow you know in order to uh, to achieve certain success so that if people go to business schools they will suddenly become better business managers but that essentially is not you know the new idea of what it means to management at least from uh, Parker's perspective he talks a lot about you know, he 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 writes on critical management you know, studies. Mm. So kind of learning to organize and not just organization from the sense of the business, but but really focusing on the everyday aspects, okay. you know, of the business. Of the the pop codes can be used. What did you say? I said, could we say the culture of the business, of the actual business? Exactly. So what we witness is many universities invest in a lot of money, according to Parker, you know, in big buildings, you know, I university, you know, many of the, 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 the old traditional universities, they are investing so much money in the beauty. So it's much more about the experience, yeah? So students come around and, you know, the marvel at, you know, this beautiful sight of, you know, proper business school, you know, you've got all these photos, you know, of people in the office and the business suits, like, you know, that is the classic idea of what the business school is. And this doesn't really teach people, you know, how to be better managers or how to better organize, you know, in this sense, because that type of, of teaching leaves out, you know, some of the things that we were talking about, you know, the political ideologies, you know, like the critical, you know, aspects of really understanding, um, all these different ideologies, whether that is marketing ideology or, you know, or politics, you know, uh, and media. But whereas, um, so I think this is the key idea for him. But, but to, to take us back to your question about why building universities in Nigeria would not necessarily be, you know, the best uh, approach to take, you know, is that, once we start to focus more on the building, then we actually run the risk of losing the value of what education, you know, mm. really is. Yeah, so essentially what we need to face, it's not to say that we don't need better infrastructures in the universities. Yeah. I've studied in Nigeria and I know very much that we need better libraries, we need conducive atmosphere, you know, it's quite hot temperature over there, we need air conditions, we need all of those things, yeah? Mm. More importantly, I think we need to first attack uh, the curriculum. Yeah, in a very, uh, we need to attack the curriculum in the sense that what do we want to teach people? So we need to focus more on the cultural aspects. Nigeria is a very, um, there's, there's a lot of diversity. There's a lot of, you know, ethnic groups, you know, in Nigeria, over 250 or something like that. So it's really vast. And I think that there needs to be um, a concentrated effort mm -hmm. in trying to understand what binds 
people together, you know, within that space. And then there has to be um, some culture. There has to be some culture that some cultural understanding that will come from um, from really trying to understand the roots, you know, of those people. Everyone needs to know. Okay, what what do we? I mean, when we when we think of you know the West and we think of Western politics, you know, we immediately think of you know ethics. We immediately think of you know morality. You know, these are things that are very important, mm-hmm. you know, to people around here. So if people don't do, if people do certain things that are um, that are not in line with the values of the people down there, it will be because they lack you know that that sense of morality. So. Okay. As a scholar, mm. I I approach the subject of of waste management. Yeah, I approach the subject of garbage. Mm. So essentially, what I've done with my research is, you know, to kind of question and reject Western discourses. You know, as limited to environmentalism, sustainability, and green consumption. Yeah. Mm. Instead, I push those boundaries to argue that rubbish sustains social and economic relationship in many parts of the world. So, for example, you know, Nigeria, uh, Lagos, Nairobi, uh, Kenya, or, you know, the Duravi slum, you know, in India, or even the favelas, you know, like in yeah. Brazil. But the key thing here um, try, I try to tease out from my argument is that whereas within the West, you know, people consider waste disposal as really a moral thing, you know, let's keep the environment clean, you know, let's sustain the planet. This, it's not the same, you know, in Nigeria. What people are really interested in is about the economic benefits that they get, that they can extract from garbage, yeah? So it's not to say that the practices of the scavengers or the householders who try to... Um, to extract value from garbage. It's not to say that these practices are not sustainable. They are sustainable, but the key thing here is that it was never about sustainability, yeah? So it's really, really important for us, therefore, to kind of take this idea to look at culture, you know, as a general um, kind of phenomenon. So you go to... um, Service users within Nigeria, yeah, Customer service is really poor, isn't it? It's very bad. You know, you, you tend to see people take a particular approach towards work. You go to the workplace, you find that in an office mm. where people are working full time, supposedly, mm. you find, you know, 50 inch uh, television. Yeah, digital television where people are actually watching TVs, you know, in the workplace. Well, this is good for leisure, but, you know, come on, people actually bring food, you know, to their office to to trade, you know, like to other people who've heard all of these cases. But the question is not why are people doing that? Well, the the question is why are people doing this? Why do people have this ethos, Mm. this type of ethos towards work? I think the best way we can answer and resolve that problem Mm. is by promoting a new type of cultural revolution. And this will bring me to the next point where you would want to reflect on how you can actually bring about changes from people without them resisting, you know, in any form. But before I do that, you know, I'll, I'll give you the opportunity to um, to respond to some of the things we've been talking yeah. about. The thing is, I, I, I like how obviously you, you mentioned, um, uh, I guess, people bringing food 
<laughs> we give we give food to work to come and trade and people having big TVs. And you know the funny thing is is even if, for example, you have a Nigerian office yeah. in London here, you would have you would still see the same kind of cultural thing where they will bring it and they would love to have a big TV in the workplace. It's it's part of I don't know why I, I would more like to explore why we think that is good. Why is it that our culture in, in, in particular thinks that that is a good thing? Why do we think to mix sort of leisure and, and work? Why is it, is it, is it a black man thing whereby you want to, uh, you feel like if you're working so hard, you should enjoy, or is it that the whites have it wrong? And that's how you should actually do stuff. Because I know, for example, that the, I don't know how many hours the French work, but I know that their own the way they think about work as well is is different. Mm. So is it that you know the British has it wrong, or do we actually have it wrong? Because it's, that's another thing. That's the, if somebody can say, okay, I have a TV in my in, at work, but I still get stuff done. Yeah. So yeah. You know, it's, you know. yeah. I think it's an interesting question that you're asking, you know, and uh, your last point, it's possible to have a TV and still work properly, but in order to do that, you need to have the right eaters, which is what we don't have and why we're having this conversation, you know, in the first place. So I think, you know, part of the thing, we need to think more about um, our emphasis on materialism. You know, there's this common saying that, uh, when people are younger, the things that they lack. Yeah. When they get older, they tend to, you know, to really um, focus on on those type of experiences. You know, so if someone has missed out on maybe an important uh, rite of passage in their childhood, they might return to this later in life. You know, and start to to do that. So what I'm saying essentially is that I mean it's. It's just my suspicion. I'm not saying that this is grounded in any kind of empirical observation, but maybe it comes from a place of lack, you know, and that, um, of course, where we've come from, mm. you know, historically, I mean, we all know the story, but the key thing here is that um, this idea of leisure, pleasure, you know, it's something really, really important within that space. Yeah. It's not to say that it's bad. Maybe we can embrace it. Maybe we can do something about it. Maybe it's the thing that binds us together. Maybe yeah. this can be the cornerstone of our success. You know, it's it's not a mistake that, you know, within Nigeria, at least, it's a consumer society. Yeah. It's mostly about consumption as opposed to production. So you're not actually far from the truth. So you have more, you have TV in the office, you're consuming the content from the media. You bring food into this place to trade. You trade this. It's really about consuming and relaxing and pleasure and all of these things. And I'll give you a classic example. In River State, you know, when there was this lockdown, the people who were really violating, um, you know, the lockdown rules, who yeah. were these people? The hotels. Mm. The hotels. The hotels are sites for leisure. Mm. Yeah, so you can see that leisure is something really, really important. And our own productivity mm. is very much related to that. <laughs> you know, but, but so I guess one thing is I was going to say is matter, you know, mater, our, our need for material, you know, to consume 
stuff. Do you, was that your second point? Was that what you were going to go to as your second point? No, I'm just saying that it's actually the first point. It's the point of departure, you know, in, okay. in trying to understand why there seems to be a lot of emphasis mm. on how we consume. Conspicuous consumption is, is something really, really big, you know, within that space. And we see it manifest in different ways in fashion, you yeah. know, in... Um, you know, in the auto industry, yep. as well as, um, you know, even even people going out, alcohol, for example, you know, if you go out on a night out, you know, you have champagne girls escorting, um, you know, champagnes with fireworks, you know, like, why do they, why do they do that, you know, like within this type? So the problem yeah. is not actually consuming fine champagne, you know, or consuming a fine, um cognac or whatever you know it's not really about that mm. it's kind of the show and kind of the uh, the underlying philosophy you know that drives that behavior yeah. that that type of behavior is not consistent with productivity yeah okay you know that the lines between production and yeah. consumption has become blurred so within consumer culture we have this term called Prosumer, and it says that the consumer are also producer. In the act of consuming, they're also producer. Oh. And you know, <laughs> that is it, it's a nice concept. But yeah. I think, you know, I wouldn't like us to maybe digress, you know, further from yeah. one of the key things which we're trying to talk about, which is, you know, cultural revolution. But I think all the things that we've been looking at, our discussion so far, is really shedding light on the need for us to understand. And the everyday life of consumers. And this is at the heart of, you know, my own academic engagement, which is yeah. not really attending to the spectacular, yeah. but really attending to the mundane, mundane, mundane aspects of everyday life, because this is what can teach us about the culture, yeah. you know, of people. And once we learn about the culture, then we can start to find ways mm. in which we can... Um, can address that. And this could be, as I said, you know, through our curriculum and curriculum, not just from the university, but, you know, from, from the kids, you know, the people from when they're this big, you know, you need to start teaching them different ways of, of doing things. And um, I'll let you go on to what you want to say, but perhaps later in the conversation, you know, I will return to an example again, you know, of, of kind of recycling and, and waste and how, um, a kind of pedagogic um, approach mm. can actually help us um, address when, this cultural revolution. What, when you say that, what do you mean? What does that word mean? So, I mean, following the pedagogy is like incorporating um, practices, incorporating things, teaching people how to do things by, you know, encouraging them through different ways of learning. So I'm talking really about children, a really um, well-crafted you know, approach to teaching people how to, um, to take on new ideas, take on new knowledge. And I'll give you an example of that. So Sweden is one of the countries that are very, very good at recycling. They're yeah. absolutely good at recycling. Mm. Now, one of the reasons why everyone recycles in Sweden is not just because they come one day and say, look, everyone needs to recycle. Mm. People want to change their behavior because we get used to a particular reading. Mm. What they actually do is that they get school children 
very, very early when they're very, very little and they give them different stuff and they ask them to bury them. Yeah. So they can give them plastic, they can give them organic waste and give them yeah. all this stuff yeah. and try to bury them. And then, you know, maybe a couple of months, a couple of years down the line, they take them back to those places to bring those things out. Mm-hmm. They bring them and they're like, okay, some of them, you know, will disappear, you know, as waste. The plastic and those ones, they remain, you know, they're still there, you know, kind of as, you know, yeah. as waste. So it's not just telling to a child that, mm-hmm. um, look, you have to, make sure that you recycle plastic but you can dispose all this other stuff they learn from doing it and that is what you can describe as a pedagogic um, development so you are gradually socializing even children into certain practices that you want them to enact and perform and we can take that approach you know so once we understand you know, as a collective, what binds us together, you know, we have, we write down, and this has to be written down so that people can, you know, actually consume, you know, this type of knowledge. But then we need to embed these things, yeah, Mm -hmm. into early childhood education. It might be that there are many adults or many senior citizens who might never change. Mm. And that's all right because they're not going to live forever. But the most important thing, you know, yeah, is exactly. to get the younger ones who are coming up. Yeah. You know, and you can still catch them young. And some people will still be able to um, change their practices. Mm. Yeah. But you, you you attack this from different ways. And that's why I say that um, when we speak of cultural revolution, when we think of what can actually change many things in Nigeria that I would think my argument will be far closer to education, that education could be the best approach to take as opposed to just building infrastructure or trying to focus on an industrial revolution. If you have an industrial revolution without a proper values for the people, it's not even going to fly, you know, because that is kind of the fabric of society and all the other things are just, you know, on on top top of that. I think, I think you, you really hit the nail on the head there. You've really like gone full circle. Um, and I think it was very important. We even sort of touched on the, uh, materialism bit because some people may not agree that that is a problem for, our culture. So it's, I guess it's good to establish that, you know, that is indeed a problem for our culture. We do have a, a, a sort of need to, 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 you know, to get, to get certain pleasures and flash it in the world of, in the world of fabulous. I think fabulous says is, is who doesn't have it is going to get it and act a fool with it. Yeah. But this is, <laughs> you know, there's, there's always the kind of, you know, if you haven't had it before, you're trying to accumulate it and you're trying to show off and you're trying and trying to do all of that thing. Yeah. And so I like, I like as you've gone towards the solution, talking about a pedagogic, you yeah. know, approaching this thing, a sort mm-hmm. of way that we can yeah. nudge people and, you know, so, but, but from there, you know, I guess to, to try and build on that point, you know, how do you, you know, how did you get, how did you get to this point in your, in your thinking? Because I agree with you so far. Yeah. How did you get to this point in your thinking in just in your own personal, yeah. uh, your work, 
Like, how do you get to that place? Yeah, I think that for me, you know, and I've touched a little bit on this uh, earlier in the conversation, but, you know, um, my background, you know, is in management, yeah, management and marketing, but marketing essentially, I mean, critical marketing. So um, I've been very much involved, you know, in terms of research, you know, writing and teaching, you know, a range of um, modules that really looks at. Uh, consumer culture. So mm-hmm. what I mean by consumer culture is really understanding the cultural practices, mm-hmm. you know, that consumers enact in their everyday life. So that means not just paying attention to, let's say, the life of the worker as Marxism or Karl Marx will, will, will tell us, but really looking at the everyday aspects, you know. Mm-hmm. And one of the key um, philosophers, you know, who was kind of inspired, you know, my work in this area is, you know, people like um, Henry Lefebvre, who is a French um, philosopher, but he writes from a Marxist tradition. So where Karl Marx was really talking about uh, a critique of the political economy, you know, where he's talking about the life of the worker being exploited and how this leads to, um, you know, a concealment of, you know, their... um, of the labor yeah, in which they put into the production of certain goods or John Baudrillard's idea of consumption. So the, the critique of the, the whole idea of the critique of the sign and, you know, and talking about how we shouldn't pay attention to production or really look at consumption. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the key thing about Henry uh, Lefebvre. That's a, it's a, I think that's a, that's a, a point to pause. So, we shouldn't pay attention to production. We should pay attention to consumption. This is what we should be doing in, in Nigeria. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that um, I, I've, I've just gone around three key philosophers who, who are basically responding, or at least two key philosophers who are responding to Karl Marx critique of political economy, yeah? So what John Baudrillard was saying, who, who writes on a postmodernist you know, perspective, yeah. basically he's saying that production doesn't really tell us much, that we've kind of moved away from that aspect of talking about, of trying to understand, you know, production in this sense. But what we should really be attending to is consumption, because when we understand why people consume stuff, how people use things, the symbolic meanings that people give to their consumption practices, we can better understand them. That is John Baudrillard, yeah? Well, I'm saying that the guy who really influenced, you know, my thinking around the everyday mm-hmm. is a guy called Henry Lefebvre, yeah, who is responding to Karl Marx's work by saying that, you know, if we think of the life of the worker, if we think of the worker and only about the productive aspect of their labor, you know, and all of mm-hmm. this stuff, then we don't kind of really understand the life of the worker because the worker has got family yeah the worker has got a wife the worker has got children the worker has got their abode where they live the worker they go to the toilet they have power movement you know they eat they sleep they drink they do all of all this stuff so you see if we really really want to understand the critique of this whole political economy we have to attend to the everyday life of the worker so he looks at the whole life of the worker as opposed to just the production or the exploitation of their labor 
yes. you know, in this sense. Yeah. So he his work, you know, he also writes, you know, about um, readings, you know, he writes about time, space, you know, reading and the stuff. So it basically look at these three things as a dialectics, you know. So, you know, from the reading of his work, the key thing you can take from there is that, you know, people people would do things without even thinking about them. But if you want to understand how social space or how space has been produced, yeah. you cannot think of this just in terms of geometry. You cannot just think of this, you know, in terms of, you know, of sizes of like, this is just a space, it's an empty container. Yeah. And what you need to look at, you need to look at how different versions of, of spaces, so what he would describe to as spatial practices, mm. representation of space, and spaces of representation. Mm. And I'll explain that a little bit. So when he says special practices, mm. special practices here is really talking about what people do every day. So the coming and going of people, yeah? Most mm. talking, you know, via Zoom, we go to work, we stay at home. This is how our everyday practices, yeah? yeah. And then when he talks about representation of space, he's really drawing on... Um, the power that people like the urban planners that they wield, they decide what space really is. They carve the roads. They say this is where you should take. So if you're going to London, you go through the M1 or you go through, you know, like other routes. So these are the, the spaces of the, that the planners they create. Okay, yep. government, you know, and all of those structures. Then he talks about the third dimension, which is the representation of space. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I mean to say spaces of representation. Yeah, now spaces of representation is how we make do, how we appropriate spaces, how we resist spaces. Mm -hmm. So the urban planners can tell us that if you want to go to London, yeah. you have to go through M1, or yeah. maybe the other. All the corners that you can take, you know, it's like the cafe behind the street, you know, he calls that, you know, in Nigeria, you say like the bush part, you know, like a different place. So we don't always conform to those um, spaces, those representational spaces that are dictated to us, okay? So we find ways to make do, we find ways to subvert, you know, those type of spaces. And what Lefebvre is talking about, that the interaction of those three different types of space mm -hmm. is what produces something, yeah? Mm -hmm. So when I go to Nigeria and I wanted to understand the everyday practices about, um, the everyday practices that are enacted and performed around garbage, yeah. household garbage, I'm not only looking at the garbage itself, I'm not only looking at, you know, the the householders, you know, I'm looking at the whole thing. Yeah. I'm looking at the politics, yeah? I'm looking at the political ideologies that drives, you know, the whole idea of uh, of, of sustainability or waste or, you know, looking at the government um, institutions, you know, like Loma, for example, what do they do with waste? I'm looking also at householders. So, you know, maybe they have days in which Loma comes to collect the waste, but yeah. people engage in flight tipping, for example, you know, they do different sorts of ways to manage their waste. So looking at the total life, the everyday life, you know, of people, then gives you a bird's eye view of what is actually going on. So this is kind of my, you know, one of the key, um, you know, philosophical work or key philosopher, Henry Lefebvre, who, really encouraged my thinking in this way. But other than that, you know, I've been teaching, I think now for the last uh, two, three years, yeah. I've been teaching uh, a module called um, um, 
consumer culture, yeah, globalization, materialism, and resistance. Yeah. Again, you know, in this module, we draw on, you know, a range of theories. It's a theoretically heavy module yeah. um, where we talk about, you know, all sorts of things ranging from um, LGBTQ, you know, type of queer theory, heteronormativity. We talk about racism, you know, commodity racism. Mm. We also look at globalization, you know, what it means to be cosmopolitan, you know. It's a really, really massive module. And so from teaching this, engaging with students, you know, on a range of those topics, I think it's drawn me very, very close to the nitty-gritty of, you know, of, of everyday life, you know. And so coming from Nigeria, you know, a place where we are not very driven by such type of interpretive um, knowledge, you know, I, I would argue that within the Nigerian space, we are much more focused on positivist, yep. scientific, you know, type of uh, of knowledge, and it's not a mistake. It's not surprising that, you know, because of this, we don't understand um, the we don't understand the uh, what's the right word the the, the power of understanding culture. Yeah. cultural values and all of these things, you know, I think there needs to be um, academics within the Nigerian space needs to be in, uh, encouraged to participate well, more in this type of qualitative, um, you know, way of understanding. When we first, I think when we first met about, I think that was like 2015, 2016. Yeah. You know, those are some of the things that I guess it, it, uh, really interested me in your in your research you know just talking about consumption talking about the mundane you know day day life of people because i mean before then you know it would have been hard to think that it wasn't just all about we just need to produce we just need to use stuff we need to produce stuff and but you definitely uh you know made me understand that it's a little bit more than that yeah, I'm happy. I'm happy that we've, you know, we've come around and, and touched on this because this is like a crucial point in yeah. maybe are talking about. Okay, there has to be some kind of change culturally. Yeah. We definitely have to address uh, consumption. Absolutely, we need to we need to focus on uh, on those aspects. You know, there is a there's a vast literature. I mean, even when because just just to go back to your point about production, about you know consumption, about everyday, about objects. You know, when we talk about, I mean, what what is the key thing? If I ask you now, yeah, yeah, as a computer scientist, that uh, what is the key thing driving technological innovation mm. in our world today? What would your response be? It would have to. It would. I, I imagine it would have to be. Um, I would say that it's somewhere between you know the power of our intellect as you know as human beings. Meaning, okay, you know, in the West, you've had so much. You know, you've you've developed so much knowledge. You know that you get to a point where it's like. Uh, people are motivated to keep, you know, pushing along those lines and finding new things, new ways to, you know, uh, new ways to do things. In, uh, and then there's, there's a part of it that there's a part of me that goes to say, okay, you know, um, people are, some people are motivated by success. 
you know, motivated by succeeding. So they know that, okay, if I'm able to, you know, push um, the country in this area, meaning I'm able to invent Uber or something, uh, there's a lot of wealth that I can capture if I'm able to do that. So there's some part is the knowledge has been built up and there's another, the second part is motivation. They are motivated by what they can acquire. Mm. Uh, that's, I guess that, that would be my, my, my capitalist view on it. Yeah. I think that's a really, really interesting view, you know, and I do agree with you, you know, for the most part that these are some of the drivers, but if we were to bring this more to kind of the technological side, the more technical side, what would you say is the, uh, the technology or the capability that drives innovation? in today's world? I mean, currently, in technical terms. It's knowledge, no? It's knowledge, yeah? it's not no? No, I mean like in terms of the technical, technical. Would, you, would you say AI technology is at the center of all I, I, I would say it's, there's, there's a, I mean, there's a lot to, to, to think about there in terms of, but here's the thing you have, to, I guess the thing about AI is, is like, from the big, you can say like from the beginning of computer science, yeah, computer yeah. scientists have been daydreaming about AI. So mm-hmm. it's like it's the kind of thing where by, um, what's his name? Um, you know, we we have we have this kind of, you know, this test where we try to we try to say okay, how do you test if you've 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 invented artificial intelligence and you say okay, the Turing test. You say the way you the way you invent the way you know that you've invented artificial intelligence is by is by saying let a computer you know play with a human being, and mm-hmm. if the computer can convince the human being that it is in fact uh, a human being, mm-hmm. it is another human being. Then we've invented artificial intelligence. So now we've I mean we've done this in in various. You know, we've done this in various ways over the, the years. And in fact, the Turing test was invented by the fathers of computing. So I would say it's from the foundation of computing, AI has been what computer scientists hope to achieve. And I guess you're right to say it, it, it drives um, technology, but I, 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 would, I, I think that it's more, what drives technology is, is, is more tangible than no, no, I'm not. I'm not saying that AI is what solely drives technology. I'm saying the reason I ask the questions, you know, within today when we think of you know data and how data, why do people, how do people manipulate data to tell us stuff? You know, we want to have driverless cars, we want to have automated machines, we want to have all of the stuff, which is the very idea of AI. And that is when we think of technology today, that is the crux of it, you know, like at the moment. But the reason why I'm bringing that is not to really get into, you know, that debate of, you know, what is the role of AI and stuff, but it's to really try and champion the need for us to really attend to the social yeah, um, I think as a guy who um, it's uh, I don't know. I think Bruno Latou he probably wrote a book about us being social. I'm not sure what the title of that book. Um, one moment. 
why well, I imagine you're trying to get at, you know, what... Yeah, actually, basically, yeah, it was, I think he said something about we have never been more than. Anyway, um, the key thing here that I want to really tease out is that the whole idea of artificial intelligence yeah. is actually deeply rooted or it has at its foundation, at least, at least the promotion of it, yeah. you know, to on a global scale, it has in its heart, at its heart, the idea of, of materiality. Yeah. Okay. So the whole idea of uh, there is an ideology okay. behind it. Yeah. yeah. So a range of, of scholars, you know, people like Bruno Latour, people like John Law, and people like Callon, you know, we have written extensively mm. on um, the need for us to think about materiality. And materiality in this sense is looking at um, the role of subject and object. So what this ideology looks at or what this philosophy looks at is that objects, as it were, mm. are not passive properties. So the modernist way of looking at things is to say that we as privileged speaking subjects, mm. that we ascribe meanings to things. Yeah? Mm. And we say... Um, you know, we say, we call this a mouse, we say this is a table, it's a okay. table, this is a phone. We just name things, right? Because we're so privileged. We are the, you know, all-conquering subjects. Yeah. yeah. And on the other hand, that objects are passive. They just bend to our wheel. We make them do whatever, mm. you know, that they need to do. This is the, this is the idea of, of, of how we see things, right? Yeah. But... Actor network theory, for instance, or materiality, if you like, question and reject this perspective mm -hmm. to say that there is a material interaction between subject and object so that these two, in a dance of interaction, produces action. So, mm -hmm. in other words, things don't just, you know, create themselves. There is always you know, the intention, there is always the purpose, you know, the subject and object working together yeah. to create meanings, yeah? And this was kind of, you know, the starting point to to helping people come to these terms of of actually accepting robots, for example, that or accepting AI technology, you know, this sort of thing that, you know, it's a fusion it's a fusion. So the divide between subject and object become collapsed so that, you know, there is an interaction between these two in order to create meaning. And I will go back to my own research to kind of understand, to, yeah. to kind of explain this a little bit more because um, what I try to focus on is to look at the materiality of rubbish. So yeah. I'm not just focusing on what people do with rubbish, but I'm yeah. also looking at what rubbish are doing to people's livelihoods, mm. for instance. Yeah. So you go to the garbage site and, you know, if you're in the landfill and you see people who are collecting refuse and doing all the stuff, looking for valuable materials, you know, they, so they have something, they will have a, a little rod with which they strike different objects, yeah? So they strike something, strike an iron, it has a hollow sound, mm. or they strike something, it has a clanking sound, or they strike something, it's got a clanking sound, and immediately they're able to discern the value of that object, whether it's, you know, aluminium, whether it's metal, mm. you know, whether it's, 
you know, plastic. Yeah. So even with their eyes closed and just hearing the sound of striking the rod with something, mm. there is the interaction then between the subject and the object in that moment to mm. produce meanings with which they then understand that this is something of value. I'm going to put this in mm. my sack. Yeah. yeah. When yeah. they tiptoe around rubbish, when they tiptoeing around, you know, the site, what is making them tiptoe around the site? Is it the gross deck? Um, you know, is it the smellscape of the place? Is it the things that are on the floor? You know, so again, the movement, the whole idea of of actor network theory was something that was, you know, heavily funded. Well, a lot of research, you know, was funded to look into, you know, this type of ideas, you know. And immediately following all of this, was more kind of mainstream. We started to see, you know, the whole idea we were hearing. I mean, from Will Smith's um, film the other time, it was the iRobot. iRobots. Yeah, iRobot. Yeah. You know, we, we started to see all of this, you know, even in like Hollywood, you know. So whilst they were promoting this in Hollywood, they were also promoting this within, you know, academic departments as think tanks. So it was really, really important to push this idea out there you know, that, that it's okay that there's this subject object, you know, kind of, I think, I think, I think um, you see at that direction. Yeah. At that bit there, because you might, you might lose some of us there <laughs> at that part. <laughs> it's very, I, I want us to, to, to open up because that's something that is, is a key part of your, your work as well, because, you know, when you're talking about AI, you know, and you're saying, you know, what AI is, and you're saying, okay, this idea has been pushed on various levels. It's been pushed on the the Hollywood side of things. You know, it's been pushed in academia. It's been pushed in different places. Yeah. Some people will call you obviously a conspiracy theorist. So this is this is where no no, no but this is where you go into it and sort of, I guess. But it's not, it's not conspiracy. I think it's more about socializing people into accepting certain things, you know? And I think this is important in all facets of life. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing that Nigeria need to learn. Yeah. You know, we need to learn, we need to do a lot of these things. And I'll tell you why it's important. Yeah, mm-hmm. Even now, I mean, before Boris Johnson came last Sunday to tell us about some of the restrictions yeah. that are going to go down, we already heard Mm. We already heard, they were already dropping these things as short commentaries by different people. What do you think was happening? Mm. We've been socializing to already accepting this. So even before the statement comes, we already kind of know it's so important to do that. So even if we know that, yes, you know, there's going to be this new wave of, of tech, the same thing is happening with vaccines. Yeah. You know, we've been told since, what, 10 years before, you know, that we've been told that it's going to be a time, you know, we will have all this pandemic, we will have that. I mean, Bill Gates will go on, on uh, you know, his TED Talk stuff and will tell us this is the biggest, um, you know, risk facing mankind, you know, and everything. What do you think was happening? What do you think was happening? You know, we, it happens, you know, we, we get socialized into things. Yeah. And and it's the same uh, the same thing happening with the whole pedagogic you know yeah. um, way of, of teaching people how to do certain things. I think this is really important. Another word for that is social engineering. Yeah, 
with which you can understand this better. It helps reduce conflict from society, disagreement, resistance, you know, if anything. You don't just wake up and just say, this is what we're going to do. You know, sometimes the shock is too much. People don't accept it. Yeah. People don't adopt it. Some people don't, you know, it's not really kind of encouraged. But if you want to change something within Nigeria, so when we're talking about a cultural revolution, it starts with the professors, you know, mm. the university. Yeah, it starts with think tank. People need to sit down together and they need to carve out, you know, these ideas and they need to have them in text format. People can read and consume these things. These things need to be embedded within our own version of Nollywood. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's like cultural intermediary, you know, like we have to interact with it at different levels, and then we become socialized to accepting these norms. Mm. The problem that we have is that many of the values that we have been socialized into, they do not really fit into our own traditions. It doesn't fit into our own context. And where do we get them from? We get them from Hollywood. Yes. You know, we get them from many of the media contents that we consume. Yeah. yeah, we get them from, you know, the opinion leaders. We get them from... Uh, the influencers, you know, on Instagram, you know, on Twitter and all of these places. Those are well and nice, but those ideas are not um, in sync with our reality. Yeah. yeah. So what we need to have more of, we need to have more people who are intentional mm. about these things. Yeah. yeah. If we want to come up with a new cultural ethos, which the government wants to promote, we have to first embed it into our own educational system. Yeah. We have to write it up, mm-hmm. you know, and we need to push this. So it's not a, a I, I participate in a lot of conspiracy, conspiracy theories, but this is not one of them. You know, I think this is actually fundamental. Yeah, I, I, so here's the thing. I understand what you mean. I, I clearly understand what you mean, but I'm saying when people look at things you know, from a, a layman's perspective. Yeah. That's how, when somebody starts, starts drawing lines across parallels, yeah. the first thing they do is, you know, they, you, you would typically say, that's a theory, that's a, it's a conspiracy theory. And it's almost yeah. like a way to, to sort of obviously lessen the person's argument. Yeah. I, I perfectly understand what you mean, but I think it takes, for my own personal view is, it takes yeah. in a different way in the West, where, mm-hmm. by, for example, it's like people write books, you know, and a lot of times in Hollywood, it's like books get popular. Yeah. Once a book enters like the mainstream, uh, yeah. And once a book enters the mainstream, you start to see, you know, replications of that idea on TV. You yeah. know, you start to see people debating those ideas in various circles and, and whatnot. Even, I mean, even if you even think about, you know, in the, in, in, for example, when I say black culture now, there's, there's this idea of, you know, financial freedom and, you know, and Mm. like what nailed it on his head that was real in the, in the black community was when it was Jay-Z's album, you know, Jay-Z had this album where he Mm. was talking about financial freedom and how, that was the most important thing, you know. And to your point, we can start questioning where did this thing start? Where is it that this thing started from? And I'm sure it's a long, you know, if you try to trace the roots of where did this thing start, it's mm-hmm. very deep. 
Yeah. So this, yeah. In the same way, you know, I, I would say for our, for, you know, for Nigeria itself, it's like, if we're to plant those seeds, you know, is, is, you know, we, I guess, I guess it, it would be good to, to, to ask, you know, what are the, what are the books, you know, people are reading in, in Nigeria, what are the books that are going to inspire Nollywood for the next? Exactly. Not just Nollywood, but when we think Afrobeats as well, you know, this is the heavily consumed, people consume this content. So these things are intentional. The problem we've had, we've had, we have currently in those, not just in Nigeria, but maybe, you know, in the global south, I don't know, I'm not sure, but let's just say, you know, within Africa, let's not pull down the global south. But, um, um, I think the key thing here is that we need to create an intentional content that we need to disseminate intentionally mm. in order to, you know, to transform people's thinking. Mm. Some people, not everyone, like I say, not everyone needs to go to the university to read all of this text, but these ideas could be embedded in order. Um, there are different touch points. Yeah different touch points. So someone might not go to university, but they will always dance to Davido's song. Yeah. So you can also embed the same content, you know, yeah. in a video. Yeah. It will have even a much more devastating effect there yeah. than actually in, in the lecture theater. Yeah. Yeah. So these things can be done, but we need to actually sit there. I'll tell you the starting point that, uh, that we can actually take. Imagine if you commit, say, let's say between the two of us, we have um, we have a billion a billion naira, yeah. Mm -hmm. We want to put a billion naira into understanding culture. Okay, mm -hmm. what do we do? You know, we fund lots of PhDs. Maybe we will fund lots of masters. We will fund lots of research, and we just put an open call. Mm -hmm. But we decide what we want people to look into. Yeah. We want people to look into you know, the cultural eaters that binds everywhere, you know, in Nigeria, or at least within a particular um, geographical location. We want to understand, you know, people's cultural outlook to certain things. We will give them, you know, kind of the themes. And we don't just come up with these. We gather together stakeholders, people who are interested in this topic, and we have a roundtable discussion mm -hmm. to say, this is what we want to do. And then people will come up with different ideas. Then we curate something. Yeah. Yeah. That we then put out as a call. Yeah. Yeah. And then mm. this is where, you know, the academics, and we don't just put this to just the university, but even people who are doing film or people who are doing different stuff, we form whatever they're doing, but whatever they're doing needs to be consistent mm. with the agenda that we want to push. Yeah. And the other word agenda, you know, sometimes can be interpreted in a negative way, but agendas are not always negative. Yeah. It could be positive, you know. So I recently went to a roundtable um, discussion in Birmingham mm -hmm. where, you know, the UK government are putting around 52 or 62 million pounds mm -hmm. into um, looking at how plastic Mm. can be made much more sustainable within the UK. So they've invited industry experts, academics who are working, you know, within that space, mm. you know, and all the practitioners, supermarket and different people. Mm. And there we were, sat down around the table and across different themes and we were carving out, you know, ways that 
that the, the call for papers mm-hmm. will follow. So, and then they broke down, okay, 8 million pounds will go into here, 10 million pounds. It's an important thing. We need to, to find ways of managing plastic. Yeah. We need to do that. But there is an intention yeah, yeah to do that through different ways. Mm-hmm. And so if you do, if you find more of that, it's better than building roads. Indeed. Because when you're trying to build the roads, the people who don't have the right values, you know, who are not culturally in sync, or the place who don't have the right ethos, you know, what do they do? They just loot this place dry and they build nasty roads, not thinking about the people who are going to be killed from it. So that is what I would describe as spectacular. It's not mundane. But I know that I understand the need for the politicians to be seen as doing something as the spectacle. It's not progressive, you know, in this way. I I think, I think that is the, to be fair, that is the core of what we are speaking here because the truth is people cannot understand this. It's like, you know, one of my favorite, you know, quotes in the Bible is, is like, who would understand it unless it's told to them? Mm. How it's very simple. Like who is going to understand this unless it's told to them? So mm. I I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't think this in one in a million years that the way to approach Nigeria's problem. If you ask me any day, I would I would typically tell you our problems are infrastructural, infrastructural. But what you are saying goes under. It goes is before infrastructure. Superstructure. Yeah. Boom. Boom. And I guess <laughs> that is that that sounds like a, a wonderful title. Is is the superstructure. So I I, mm. I guess my thing is my questions around that is more around um it's like a lot of times, you know, like I always, for example, maybe I, I'm watching something and I hear somebody talking about cancer research and maybe they are, you know, they are campaigning for more money in, can- in cancer research and then i look at them and say oh am i not just going to are we not just going to raise money so that you continue to have a job you know so there's always that you know question that people question academics but i think in in your case it's it's very clear because i know it's sort of i have an idea of you were you were not it's not like you're an academic like your background you started working as a, yeah. just, just talk about your background. So it's not as if you're an academic who is, needs money to keep funding his research. Yeah. But yeah. Talk about how you started working and in Nigeria and all of that. Yeah. I have a very, it's quite interesting, you know, for me because, you know, I, um, when I graduated, I did my, my, um, youth service in Baden, you know, and, you know, during that time, I actually taught at um, Loyola College. It was this mm-hmm. place for a brief while. And, and um, you know, I left, I think after I finished the service, I went to, um, went back home, yeah. you know, and then I had, uh, you know, just one of all these everyday disagreements you have with your dad, you know, like, it's just me, you know, I've just finished my NYC. You can't tell me to sit at home, you know, like, I, you know, I've got to go out, you know, so... Well, we, we had uh, a bit of disagreement, so I got angry. I was really hot-headed, you know, and I just said to my mom, not even my dad, I just said, look, I'm going to Lagos, you know, and I'm not coming back. I'm going to get a job in Lagos. And she's like, are you crazy? You know, what are you going to do in Lagos? And, well, my uncle lives in Lagos, but, you know, and she was saying, okay, you know, if you must go to Lagos, you must go to 
um, you know, go to your uncle's house and blah, blah, blah. So I told her no, that I wasn't going to do that, that I have a friend that I met you know, during my service year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I actually went to Lagos and this this place I was living in, uh, you know, Adjigul. Yeah, this was where my friend was. I didn't even know at the time because I'm quite, you know, I'm not really Lagosian, you know, I'm born and raised in Delta State, you know, and I have my um, early education as well as my uh, bachelor degree, you know, there. So I wasn't really like a big traveler in the sense. Um, but once I arrived there, I knew that it was uh, kind of a really, not, not not really, not the best of places, you know, to be. But what I really admired most about this guy, he's a very driven person, you know. And so we kind of had this mutual understanding of how to, I think my motto at the time is I take from life what I want to take from it, you know. So I settled that evening and the next day, I just went off actually with my own um, little suitcase and I went straight to, um, what's the name of the street in Lagos? Sakati Nubo, I think that's it. Mm. So I went there, you know, and um, one of the places I had in mind was that I wanted to walk in Global Company. Yeah. So I just went outside, stood there, uh, and I was waiting. I got there as early as seven, I think, in the morning, and I saw people making their way into the building. So everyone that went, you know, I just kind of I try to observe them, you know, have a look at, you know, the moves. And I just go to them and said, um, you know, I'm here, I'm looking for a job, you know, and my spirit has directed me to you. I think you can help me. Um, so it'd be very nice if, you know, you could tell me, you know, what I need to do. And, you know, there's a popular line that would say, oh, yeah, yeah, at Globalcom, we only hire people with first class or two ones. So I said, okay, don't worry, you know, like I've got the qualification for it. So, okay, mm-hmm. fine. Uh, and then, like, do you have a CV? You know, I just hand the CV. Some people, I pitch the same thing to them, and they just don't even pay attention to what I'm telling them, you know. Yeah. But um, I did meet some really large people, you know, who took my CV. And when I left that place the same day, I think I spent around until nine, nine-ish or so, then I left and I went to, um, I went to this tower, I think it's, it's called Zenon Tower, maybe, I think so. That's where you've got Orlando, you've got Visa Phone at the time, you know, a couple of other companies. It's really close to a co-hotel. Mm. So I got into that building and then I went straight up to Orlando, which was a place that I was keen on as well. You know, I think I tried to drop CV there. It wasn't possible. And I was coming down in the lift. And so I saw this lady. Uh, I'm not going to mention her name now, but, you know, I just saw her and, you know, I just... I just pitched the same thing to her and I said, you know, that I'm here, I really like to walk, you know, visa phone because I've seen that she is wearing the visa phone ID, the badge, you know, and uh, I told her everything and she just looked at me and she's like, you're really brave, you're man, you know, I said, <laughs> well, yeah, I just said that, you know, it's, it's the Holy Spirit, you know, and yeah, I was just how old like this. I was 20. Okay. I think, okay. Yeah. And then I said, 20, yeah, 2021, I think. Yeah. And then I, I um I was still in the room, so I gave the CV to her, and she's like, okay, no worries. And then she, uh, what did she even say? Did she tell me at that point? She said, I remember her as telling me that how do I know that she's the HR manager? Mm. And I said, I didn't know that my spirit just directed me to her. Yeah. So I was still in, because I stopped, I think, on the fifth floor, and I was on the lift going down. Then I saw this really weird number called me. It's like a 2222 number. You know, it was this lady and she was just like, yeah, this is your first telephone interview. 
and she was interviewing me in the lift as I was going down. By the time I arrived to the ground floor, I already had a test scheduled for uh, next Thursday, and she yeah. told me where I needed to go. So I went for the test, you know, like I did the test, and I had an interview with Jimovia, uh, who is the... Um, I think he's the, he was the, he's the owner, he was the owner of Visaphone. I don't know if Visaphone still exists, but I remember going to the Zenith house. Um, he owns Zenith Bank, and yeah. it's really, really the biggest office I've been by, by any chance, you know. So yeah. we had this, you know, meeting where it was an interview, you know, and then, you know, he welcomed me to the company. So I just got that job, you know, like that. Yeah. And, and then... Just after I got the offer for that job and I started that job, mm. I think I was in the training and then I got a weird number called me, which was like zero eight zero five 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 one. Like this number was so torn that that this was it was global, you know, global were calling me. So oh. again, you know, I went to the interview, went to the test, then I met with my Kadinuga, you know, at his house. It was very late in the night actually. Uh, with the, the director and a couple of other people. And, you know, we had uh, a really nice conversation. And then they offered me more money than Visible. So I left Visible and I went to Glow. And so when I left, um, when I left my, uh, my parents, you know, to yeah. Lagos, mm-hmm. I just started working from this. And just as I said it, and I was going to Lagos to get yeah. a job. That's what happened. But to come back to how, you know, I made that move to academe, you know, I I was working at, in this company for, I think, nearly two years. And it was great because I was doing really well, you know. I won a lot of, you know, employee of the month, you yeah. know, and the stuff. Uh, but I, at some point, I became very dissatisfied, yeah. you know. And I'm not sure why I became dissatisfied because everything was okay. It was more like there was the possibility of even getting a transfer to Abuja, you know, stuff like that. But when I was younger, my parents, I think my nickname was, you know, professor. They always called me. Uh, my mom would always say that, you know, this is my professor. She would, when she introduces me to, you know, her friends or other people, she would say, meet my professor, you yeah. know, this type of stuff. So I don't know if this was what was guiding me, but believe me, at this point, I didn't even know what the PhD was. It was not even... It did not even register that I wanted to do a PhD or what I was even capable of doing it. But I just became disgruntled, you know, you know, the company I was working and I said, okay, now I'm going to try and, you know, and get an admission. And I just, okay, what do I want to study? I wasn't even keen. I'll do marketing. I didn't know that I was going to end up in a school of management. I didn't know the difference between the school of management and the school of business but mm-hmm. thankfully i ended up at the school of management where we approach learning from a heterodox perspective so we don't really conform to this orthodox way of learning we take mm-hmm. a very critical approach to looking at you know marketing discourses you know and stuff like that mm-hmm. so i had this really really um rewarding experience you know like doing the masters you know and all of that and you know somehow you know i managed to um you know to get some funding you know and to get um you know the support of uh, some really really important people you know who really encouraged me you know i had um, a tutor a personal tutor at the time, like a professor that I really hold in high esteem, yeah. um, Professor James Fisher. You know, he was a guy who who showed me that you know that I had potential that I wasn't aware of. You know, and he, he just said to me that it would be a mistake if you don't, um, you know, if you don't continue, you know, to 
to challenge yourself and yeah. you know, do a PhD. So he was really, really key in my decision to um, to proceed with the PhD. Mm. You know, and I did the PhD, and somehow I kept because I, I know when I wrote my master's dissertation, it was really drawing on Marxist notion of commodity fetishism mm. to explore, you know, how goods are fetishized through marketing practices. So, in other words, thinking about why people buy, um, you know, the iPhones, why people buy iconic brands, without thinking about some of the externalities that lies in the production processes. So. You know, I was asking people, for instance, well, you're well aware that Nike, for instance, are engaged in child labor, or, you know, Apple through Foxconn have exploited people, but yet you continue to buy their phone. Why do you do that? So, in essence, trying to understand what veils consumers from seeing the dark sides of the production processes. So, this critical way of looking at marketing then resonated with myself. It was kind of an awakening process, you know, for me. So when I came to my PhD, you know, I wanted to continue along that line, you know, so things like power, resistance, you know, and those things were kind of, you know, was really key with me. I, I saw within myself because everyone, we all cling to some form of ideology, you know, whether that is coming from, you know, Smith's perspective, or that is coming from Karl Marx. We we cling on to something, but we just probably don't know. But in the course of our engagement or exposure to certain materials, then we, you know, we then find that this is where what what our heart beats for. But that was basically my entry, you know, into academia. You know, and of course, during the PhD, you know, I was teaching, um, supporting teaching and learning, and. You know, I just finished the PhD and, uh, you know, I became a full faculty member and a full member of staff, if you will. And that was my, that's my journey, really. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Now, that's, it's, it's a beautiful story, man. A beautiful, because I just wanted to, you know, touch on that. Yeah. So I, it's interesting that you even asked that question because when I, now recently I've been thinking about, of course, you know me well, and you know what my um, my thoughts and my take are on kind of politics and, you know, and all that stuff. But, you know, again, you know, I start to see that there's a great interest, well, not so much in becoming a politician, you know, as it were, but really contributing to, um, you know, political conversation, to that space, to finding ways. I mean, everyone, not everyone needs to, um, to run for office, I feel that the best contributions people can make is not really by, you know, sitting on those hot seats, but just contributing, in, um, you know, maybe on the back end. It's not the spectacular again, you know, yeah. kind of, and I'm not the guy for the spectacle. Yeah, <laughs> it, honestly, it is. It is quite. It is quite rare. Like I guess. Um, and I guess it's one of those things of how, you know, what the power of knowledge and what knowledge can do, because yeah. it is quite rare to find, um, you know, us in Nigeria sort of looking at, uh, sort of looking at the distraction, you know, looking at the mm -hmm. spectacle, like you say, it's quite rare for us not to focus on that and, you know, look to the mundane. And that's why, you know, it was very important that, you know, we had this 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 conversation, and I, I think it's, a, it's definitely a beautiful start to you know talking yeah. about the cultural revolution. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, next time we can probably pick up more on the nitty-gritty of how this might be approached, you know, like how can we, I mean, really looking at, um, you know, proper steps, you know, in which we, that, that this could be our starting point. Yeah, just just final, just finishing questions is, yeah. why do you think, because I, I, I want to think that, you know, the, uh, the rich, you know, the, you know, the brilliant people in, in Nigeria, why do you think, you know, funding research, you know, is not, it's not something that is, is, is like priority for them because for, for one, I can, I, I can say a few things about like, okay, as far as like investing in companies, I know there are a few, you know, there are a few people that have, you know, maybe venture VC firms or something, but yeah. I definitely believe that the rich in, in, in Nigeria are not doing enough as far as investing their money in businesses. When it even yeah. comes to like research, mm-hmm. why do you think they don't have an understanding of this? And why do you think it's not on their priority? Why is it not something they, they look to? Well, you know, I think the key thing here is, I would just call it in, in two words, taste and distinction. You know, and, and these, these are terms from a guy called Per Bourdieu, you know, who, who is a French um, philosopher who writes about class, you know, this guy who come up with, came up with the word cultural capital. Mm. You know, I think that many of those people, they have money, Mm-hmm. But they don't actually have, you know, the cultural capital to understand the importance or maybe the relevance of these things. You know, it, it, this is knowledge, basically. You know, um, in order for you or an establishment or an institution, you know, to be driven by this idea that we need to get people to do research, mm-hmm. you know, first you need to um, you need to acknowledge, you need to possess a deep understanding of the value of this type of knowledge in order for you to desire it mm. in the place. So I think you have all those rich people who don't understand the value. Mm. For them, education is more, they understand education in a very different way. Mm. Although the crux of our argument for today is really yeah. looking at, I mean, if you think of the reason, it's the same reason why um, engineers are paid better than um, sociologists, mm. or, or you know, or doctors, you know, are paid better than anthropologists, you know, and this sort of thing. Because there is the tangible element; people can immediately see that. Oh, yeah, you ha- you get you pay a doctor; the doctor can treat this person to get well. An engineer can produce this stuff mm. and then can do this thing. But what we're talking about today, all these things about culture, all that they're not that they're not tangible, you know, yeah. like in this sense. So here in the West, they understand the value of these things. They've always understood the value of these things. Hence, you've had anthropologists. I mean, one of the um, one of the really successful British anthropologists, people like Mary Douglas, you know, they've she, she's written extensively. She wrote a book called Constructive Drinking. Mm-hmm. Now, in this book, she tries to understand how constructive drinking can foster um, um, collaboration, how we can help workers, you know, how we can 
help them um, work collectively together for the common good, how it leads to social bonding, you know, mm-hmm. and all this sort of thing. So we're talking about constructive drinking of alcohol, you know? So this is, these are kind of really mundane stuff. It's, it's, right. British, tradition. it's British tradition. Yes. Yeah. Yes. She understood that this is where the British culture, you know, of the, the pub and all of these things, you know, where it came from. It's really, really important. It's in the fabric of the society, which mm-hmm. is why we're saying within Nigeria, we need to understand those things. We need to understand them. I mean, here, the public houses is so important. Mm. The pubs are not going to go away. They're always going to be here because it's a part of the traditions, mm. you know, of the people. But in order for us, maybe without Mary Douglas writing about these things, they'll know still, but writing about it allows people like, oh, so it's not even from here to come and understand this and we can participate in that culture. And yeah. so there is something that holds, you know, in yeah. this sense. Well, to go to your question, Millionaires, billionaires not understanding the need for this. They will put their money into what they can see. Mm. What you can see is the spectacle. What you can see, however, you know, is the mundane. For you to see the value of those things, even the government, the state, mm. and this, even the people, yeah, even the universities, I'm talking about the universities, still don't understand the value of this type of knowledge. Mm. Yeah, but this type of knowledge is cultural capital. Yes. It's like somebody going to a restaurant and using the knowing how to use the proper cutlery. You yeah. know, it's like that is that type of knowledge we're dealing with essentially. So you know what we call money misroad. You know, like in yeah. Nigeria, where you can yeah. have money and not be exposed to those sort of things. Yeah. I'm not saying that everyone who's got money needs to be an academic or needs yeah. to be intellectual. No, they don't have to be, but they need to understand the value of this type of knowledge yeah. and how you know useful. But at the end of the day, those type of things also a game of interest at the same mm-hmm. time. So. You know, capitalists will always do something that is kind of in the interest. So, mm. first, I think is knowledge, mm. um, taste, distinction, mm. and interest. Yeah, I, was, I, I, I agree with you there. But I was going to say, like, you know, it is is well known that like Rockefeller, you know, Andrew Carnegie, this like these guys, you know, put a lot of their money towards research. So um, I don't know if, you know, sort of the capitalists we have in, in Nigeria, they are not, I don't know if it's to say they are not true, <laughs> they are not no. true capitalists. Oh, you know? I think they, they, might, they, might, they might be, but it might also be that they don't have the right people around them. Okay. Rockefeller might not understand they need to do that, but the people around him who are working for him in his payroll, because he hires people to say, I want to work on my reputation. You know, people, I mean, at some point, people saw Rockefeller as, you know, as a very dangerous person. Yeah. You know, and so there wasn't, it seemed to me like there was, a lot of intention, you know, in trying to change how people perceive them. And so what will he do? He will hire people to say, how can I rebrand myself? Or how can I brand myself in a way that, you know, even long after I'm gone, people will see me like in this way. Yeah. And they put a lot of money and people will say, okay, you need to do this. Bill Gates is following that um, you know, kind of approach. So those guys, they, at the moment, what they just understand 
is just making the money you know, on all of those things. They don't know the needs. They don't understand the need for for the other side of things. But maybe in time they will. But when they do, they also need you know the right people you know to be around them. But again, if you're doing that, and if the intention is not not really, if the intention is really to work on your image, you know, then it's it's debatable. You know, it's questionable whether. You know, this is even. I don't. I don't know. The, the, funny enough, there was so there was somebody that six uh, nine is his name. Is yeah. this rapper that just came out of prison and he gave he essentially gave two hundred k to a charity. Yeah, charity refused the money. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't know. Obviously, we could say integrity. A lot of whatever, whatever the reason that they 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 you know they refused the money, but. I guess there's this thing that, you know, people, the rich would always give money regardless of why they give it. Mm. I think, um, like, <laughs> what is more important is that they give the money. <laughs> so yeah. if, if I make an example of, you know, the, I think the Medici family, for example, mm. the reason why, why they invest, invested in art and all of these things was because they understood what it meant for the society. They they knew what it meant for their nation. Mm-hmm. It was some kind of you know pride that this would make Italy. Uh, it would make Italy something, I believe. Mm-hmm. So they did. I I think this uh, just going back to how you started talking about you know intention in the beginning of this. Just just an a, a spirit of of. You, you do it for your nation. Mm. Okay, I'm going to do this for my nation. It's, it's mm. enough. Even though yeah. you know that it benefits your image, whatever mm. the case may be, but we hope, all we can ask is that you do it. Yeah. But I think, you know, I think what that last point that you raised is probably maybe what we can begin with because yeah. if we want to think about the first steps to cultural revolution, you need to think, okay, if it's a curriculum, what do you embed in it? So I think what you're saying is this sense of patriotism, yeah. which is really paramount. It's so, so important, you know, and they need to do that. But I think to come back to where we were is that, is to say, I mean, my take on it is that it's important why people are doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because just giving someone money, mm-hmm doesn't really translate to making their life better. Actually, you giving them money can make things even worse for them, you know? And you you, you tend to see this with families that are supposedly wealthy. It's not for, it doesn't happen, doesn't translate to all families, but the vast majority of them is, you know, when there is already the means and the provided means for for the children, you know, then, or their offspring, they lose the ability, yep. yeah, they don't find the space to learn how to create. Mm-hmm. What they learn how to do is how to consume. Like I said, the disclaimer there, it's not for all families, but the vast majority of them, you know, it's like giving someone fish all the time, they don't learn how to catch it. They're just waiting for you to give them, you know. So you tend to, you, you can give, you can do you can engage in charitable courses, but I think that the intention for doing that needs to be clear and it needs to be good because um, Proton Gamble, mm. 
one time they developed a water purification technology, something they called pour, mm. and they tried to market this heavily, but it failed. Mm. The product did not take off. Mm. What they did was they turned this into corporate social responsibility. Mm. And during the, um, I think one of the natural disasters in Sri Lanka, mm. they distributed this little technology to people for free and they call this um, corporate social responsibility but this was not and never yeah. the intention of yeah. what they were trying to do so it's just another way you know because what do they do i mean all of those companies they need to somehow give back you know as part of csr you know like society and whatnot so this became another way so instead of them spending money doing other things that could be relevant, then they decided to give out what they wanted to sell and what, what wasn't selling very well. You know, it's a little bit dodgy. It still comes down to the idea of um, of, of resources, you know. It is still the selfish. So if someone is doing, if you're funding a lot of studies, you're funding a lot of things because you want to vaccinate people, Mm. In the end, you're going to take back all these things that you get. You're not necessarily doing anything for people. You're just paving the way to be able to vaccinate people. That's why you're investing, you know, in all the studies and drugs and all of those things. Not necessarily to help people because, I mean, many of those medicines, they actually create more problems from people than they actually solve, yeah. you know. So, but if you put money into this because you want to sell this medicine to people and make the money back. That is not giving. No, it's not, it's not, it's not. You know, so I think, you know, philanthropy, you know, if we want to get into, you know, the, the discussion of, uh, of ethics, you know, yeah. I think ethics is very, we need to think of it from, you know, a deontological, or uh, consequential or inconsequentialist, you know, perspective. Okay. We can probably talk on that maybe next time. We we'll end it. I think we we'll end it there. That was it. Was wonderful to uh, to definitely just touch around, you know, a, a lot of those topics. And I think that's that's the perfect way to end it with. We, in some ways, we need to be lucky as well. We need to be lucky that <laughs> somebody wants to give to the cause and they actually mean it. Anyhow, peace, bro. <laughs> <laughs>